Amen. Good morning, Mars Hill. Thank you so much. New year, new look. We have some new seating arrangements in the room. Sorry if that throws you a little bit. Uh, we have some, uh, some sands in the back, bleachers, nosebleed section, uh, if you would like to join those sometime. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to be studying through the end of chapter 7, verse 60. And I uh, just say that so your eyes get wide and you get worried here. We're going to look at the overview this morning of, these, uh, t- of this text, of these verses, and the life of Stephen and the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament in the early church. Uh, and then we're going to come back to it again next week because there's just so much to cover, so much to study, so much worth mining the depths of. And, and so we're going to look at this two, in two parts this, this week and next week. I remember, and maybe you guys have read this or looked at this, but one of the first books, Christian books that I got in my early life, early faith, was Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you've seen that or read that or looked at that. And I remember reading the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were uh, believers and proclaimers of the gospel in England, and they were burned at the stake. And when they were being taken to the, the stake to be burned, uh, Hugh Latimer said to Nicholas Ridley, Master Ridley, play the man. For today, by God's grace, we will light a candle in England that shall never be extinguished. And I remember reading that and reading so many others, and maybe you've done that as well. And then, and then we look at Stephen, who is the first martyr in the, in the Christian church, and, and we think, man, wow. We're encouraged, or maybe we're challenged or convicted, or maybe we wonder, could I stand with such confidence and conviction and stare through the jaws of death and and hope in Christ alone? And and I think that the the thing we need to see, and it's the story of the book of Acts, it's the story of Stephen that we're going to see this morning, is, is as we stare at these martyrs or as we stare at the early church, many of us say, man, I wish I could be like. Some of us look at the early church and we say, oh, I wish we could be like the early church. I wish we could have a church like the early church. I wish we could get back to that. And as we stare at these martyrs, as we stare at the early church, we cannot miss the one they are staring at. That's how they stood with such conviction. That's how they stood with such confidence. They stared through the jaws of death into the eyes and the face of God and the, and the whispering ear of Jesus at his side saying, that's my son and that's my daughter. That's what gave them hope. That's what gave them confidence. That's what gave them conviction. And so when we look at them, let's be encouraged, let's study them, but let's look at the one they're looking at. And this morning we get to see that, literally physically, as Stephen proclaims the gospel. At the end of his life, though he's stoned, though he's murdered, He sees through it. He sees the face of God. He sees Jesus. So let's look this morning at this text. We're going to be starting with verse 8. We're going to look at the first part, Stephen's arrest, Stephen's response, the accusations, the false accusations. We're going to sort of flow through the the outline of this text. And the first thing we're going to see in the first few verses is that Stephen is innocent, but he's falsely accused. He's innocent. They can't find anything wrong with him, but he's falsely accused. And then the script flips. The whole story, the whole narrative flips. 
beginning in verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, all the way down to, to verse 50, Stephen preaches one of the longest texts in the book of Acts. He, he has the longest recorded sermon speech in the book of Acts. And what does he do? Though they think they're, the accusers think they're innocent, they're showed, shown to be condemned. The innocent one condemns the false accusers, and then it enrages them, like it would, like it should. They stand convicted, they stand condemned, and the only thing they can do is stop their ears, shout louder than him, and stone him. And that shows us that the messenger, Stephen, becomes the message. He is proclaiming to us, picturing for us, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's understand that this morning as we, as we look through this text. The first thing, chapter 6, verse 8, down to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 6 introduces us to Stephen. We saw it last week, that the apostles are wrestling with this, this, this problem in the church, this conflict in the church, a question in the church, and, and they say it's not right for us to give ourselves to ministries of mercy. It, it, we can't give up the ministry of the word to give ourselves to this. What would be right for us is to give this up to other men, faithful men, men full of the Holy Spirit, men full of wisdom, while we give ourselves up to ministries of the word. And so they go on, they give these characteristics, men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power, and the first one named is Stephen. So that's in verse 5 of chapter 6. It's in verse 8 of chapter 6 as well. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now that's another way that Luke uses that phrase, wonders and signs. And then he talks about full of grace and full of power and full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. What is Stephen full of? He's full of the very presence of God. He's full of his king, the characteristics and nature of his king, Jesus. Stephen is living full of Jesus. He is full of the presence. He has the full presence of God, the full presence of Jesus dwelling within him. And that's what's remarkable because these men stand up and they don't recognize it. It says that the Jewish men here, that some from the, who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, verse 9, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, argued with him. Now, who are these men? These are men from various locations, various areas around the Mediterranean that are all a part of, in Jerusalem, the synagogue of the freedmen, as it's called, is what the text says. Why is it called the synagogue of the freedmen? It's called the synagogue of the freedmen because these were once Jewish slaves in Rome. These were once men, the synagogue began with men that were once slaves in Rome but had been set free. Thus the name freedmen. But what's interesting, and when we talk about slaves, when we're saying here what they are, this is not chattel slavery, this is indentured servitude. What happens likely in why they were indentured servants was they, in, they had some kind of debt that they owed, and at some point that debt was called in and they couldn't pay it. And so the way you paid your debts at this time was to indenture yourself, to become an indentured servant to whoever you owed the debt to. You essentially worked for them for free, and Rome called in the debt. 
and on all these Jewish men and called them into, took them to Rome and called in the debt, and they were enslaved in Rome, working for free, doing whatever it may be, maybe putting together the Roman roads or something like that. But what's interesting is why they were freed. They were not freed because they settled the debt. They were not freed because they paid the debt. They were freed because, as the one who indentured them and called them to Rome and took them to Rome, General Pompey said they were worthless slaves. Why were they worthless? They were worthless, he said, because their religion, their devotion to their traditions and their religious practice was so encumbering, so enormous to them, so priority to them that they were worthless. They, they never could do the work that I demanded them to do or they never could do it at the time that I demanded them to do it. I need you to come over here and work on this project. Well, sir, we can't do that because our, our religion says that we can't do that kind of work or, or we can't go and do it at that time because our religion says, our traditions say, our temple worship, our law keeping says that we have to keep the law at this point and that point and, and we have to pray at this hour and do these things. They were so committed and devoted to keeping the law and keeping their traditions and observing temple observance that they were worthless for work. And so General Pompey says, this is just, I can't deal with this. And he released them and he freed them. And what we have here in this text are descendants of those men from various regions. To give you further context, Cilicia, in the heart of Cilicia, is a city called Tarsus, from which a man named Saul comes, at the end of this text we see, who's likely the leader of this synagogue. And remember that Saul turns to Paul by the power of the gospel, and Paul, giving his own testimony, said, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the lawkeeper of lawkeepers. I was chief among perfect law-observant, temple-observant, law-keeping, law-abiding Jews. That's who these men are. They're that committed and that devoted. And here they have one proclaiming to them that you no longer have to keep the law. In fact, you can't keep the law. There's only one, Jesus Christ, who kept it perfectly on your behalf. And if you hope in him, then guess what? You no longer need the temple because he is the temple of the living God and he comes to take up residence within you and now you become the temple of the living God. You no longer have to trek to the temple to keep the law. You now have the law written on your heart and you are a moving temple of the living God. You don't need keeping the law. You're not privileged by land or by your ancestry. You don't need the temple you need Jesus. That's the message that Stephen's proclaiming. How do you think that sat with them? It says it in the text. The very first thing that it says that they did was they disputed with Stephen, which is a mild word. It's a powerful word in an original language. It, it means they fiercely argued with him, forcefully and fiercely argued with him. They vehemently disagreed with Stephen arguing and fighting against him. And notice what verse 10 says. It's such an amazing verse. It's such a confidence-building verse for every believer and follower of Christ. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They saw a man 
proclaiming something they did not like, and they attacked him. What they did not know was that this man has the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, over him and in him. They did not understand and they could not resist the power and the intellect and the wisdom and the grace and the spirit that resided within this man. They could not withstand it, it says. What they don't know is that he's not simply conveying his opinion. He's conveying the very inspired words of King Jesus. Listen to what Luke 21, 13 to 15 says. It says, but before all this, Jesus speaking to his disciples, they will lay hands, their hands on you and persecute you and delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity, opportunity, privilege, right, gift to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. Not to meditate, not to worry about, not to be anxious about what you will say or how you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom. I, Jesus, King Jesus, will give you a mouth and give you wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to, what word is used? Withstand or contradict. And what is so amazing about the word withstand is it's offensive for Stephen, and it's defensive for the adversaries. What does that mean? It means, the word withstand means resist, oppose. This is a defensive word for his adversaries. It means that Stephen is not the one under attack in these verses. The adversaries are under attack by the power of the gospel. And they cannot resist it. They cannot stand against it. They can't contradict it. They can't overcome it. It is too powerful. It is infinitely more powerful than we ever give it credit for. This is the power that's at work within Stephen. This is the power that's at work in what he's proclaiming. Because this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of King Jesus. That's being proclaimed. And his adversaries cannot stand against it. They can't do anything other than do what every three and five and seven year old does. Call him names. And react. And lie about him. That's all they can do. They can't argue with him. This is logic on fire. This is, this is truth and grace. This is Jesus. They can't resist him. They can't overcome him. And this is what Stephen is proclaiming. This is what Stephen is full of. And one of the things that we learn here for ourselves through this response that they cannot withstand in Jesus' instruction in Luke 21 is that we're not to worry about what we are to say. We are to be consumed with resting in who he is. He will give the strength. He will give the wisdom. He will give the words. We need only trust him. And that's what Stephen is doing here. He will work through us to proclaim the gospel, and that's exactly what Stephen does. And so they can't resist it, so they call names and they lie about him. And this is in verses 12 down to 14. They secretly, it just builds on itself, they, they, they stirred people up. 
Verse, verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words about, against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses there who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change, will destroy this place, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, verse 15, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is extraordinary. They can't resist the power of the gospel. They can't resist the message of the gospel. They can't stand against it. They can't overcome it. They can't attack it. It cannot be proven false. It cannot be argued or overcome. And it cannot be argued or overcome in Stephen. The man and his message are one and the same. They are consistent. His character and nature matches Jesus. And the message he proclaims is the message of Jesus. If you remember, a shining face in the Old Testament indicates someone who has been in the presence of God. Someone who stood in the presence of God. If you remember, Moses is, is, one of, is really one of the few people that said to have the very face of God. His, his face glowed with such glory and such brightness that, that the people said, we can't resist it. We can't Handle it. Turn your face from us. Your glory, the glory of God that's shining on your face. Moses veiled his face. So what is Luke telling us in verse 15 here? All of his accusers are saying this man stands opposed to Moses. But in reality, this man looks just like Moses. He has the full presence of God shining off of him. He has the very, the very face of, of an angel, the very shining bright face of the presence of God. Stephen is innocent and no one can argue that reality. He's shining the very presence of God and no one can bring any accusation against him, against his character, against his integrity, or even against the message that he's proclaiming. He's innocent and no one can argue with it. The story starts with the innocent one is falsely accused, but then the headline shifts. It begins to shift when the question's asked by the high priest of Stephen, is this true? And then in verse 2, the, the, the whole script flips. And now the false accusers are shown to be condemned. The innocent one shows them to be condemned. And that's our second point. Stephen shows that they stand condemned, and he does it so masterfully. This is a, this is a master class, beginning in verse 2 all the way down to, to verse 50. This is a master class in evangelism and a master class in preaching Christ from the Old Testament. It's a master class in evangelism because Stephen begins with what they know. He begins with what they already hold true, they already believe, and then he, he builds from there. And then he sets the hook at the end to show them they don't even keep the things that they believe. What they need, they're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And it's a master class in, in preaching Christ in the Old Testament because that's all Stephen does. He, he shows them, he highlights for them character after character, specific characters, to make some specific points. 
And how does he do this? He does it by recounting to them their own, their own history. Now, now, this is what happens to us. We read, we read the Bible, we read verse 8 down to verse 15, and we're so moved and we're so powerful. And then we read verse 1, and the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, blah, 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 blah. History, history, skip over. Where's the good stuff? Oh, Stephen's at the end. He's staring at Jesus. That's what we do. But Stephen is not recounting some dry, dead history. He is making specific points using their specific beliefs. And it's remarkable. And he begins by pointing to them to eight Old Testament characters. He points to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. And for us, as we study the scriptures, we need to say, what do all these men have in common? Because that's the message. What do they all share in common? And they share three things specifically in common. And it's, it's, it's what Stephen is trying to communicate to these, these men, the synagogue of the freedmen. The first thing that they share in common, Abraham all the way down to Solomon, the first thing they share in common is that God was with his people long before there was ever a temple, long before there was ever a land, and long before there was ever a law. He was with his people Long before their traditions, long before the temple, long before the law, long before the land. Look at what it says in the text. It says he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. Look at how many locations are mentioned. He appeared to Joshua. He was with, jo- he was with Joseph rather in the pit. He was, he was with Moses when he was in Egypt. He was with Moses in Sinai, on Sinai. He was with Moses in the wilderness. He's, he's talking about geography over and over again as he talks about these characters. And was he showing us that God was with his people long before there was ever a temple, law, or lands? He showed up to Mesopotam- in Mesopotamia to Abraham. There's no temple there. He showed up to, to Abraham on Mount Moriah when he lifted the knife over Isaac. There's no temple law or land in that context. He showed up to Jacob at that creek where he wrenched his hip. There's no temple law or land in that moment. He showed up on the Nile River, the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, those 40 years in the wilderness with Moses. There's no temple law or land in this context. The crossing of the Jordan River and the promised land with Joshua. No temple, no law, no land. Now you're saying, well, wait a second, the Ten Commandments, what about the tabernacle? His point is, that Stephen's point is, is that he showed up to these people, showing them his nearness and grace long before they had the law. That's that's the whole point of Exodus chapter 19. Before you get the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, all you have in Exodus 19 is a recounting of God's grace. God's grace precedes law-keeping. They are accepted, loved by the Most High King, God Almighty, Creator of the universe, long before they ever kept a law. That's the point that Stephen is drawing out. He was near to David before there was a physical structure temple. In fact, he wouldn't even let David build a building for him. It didn't happen until Solomon And then what happened with Solomon at the very commissioning of the temple? Solomon, God through Solomon told in 1 Kings 8, 27 that God is not limited, will never be limited by a building built by human hands. The temple is not for God. The temple was for them. 
to teach them things. The second thing that Stephen is making a point of here is that each of them, though there was, as God appears to them in these foreign lands long before they were in the promised land and long before they were in Jerusalem, long before they had the temple and, and, the, and the structure of the laws and all of these things, he appeared to them and he invited each one of these individuals to trust him at his word, to live by faith in his promises. Think about Abraham all the way back in, in, in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. It says that he believed God at his word. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't do in order to get accepted. He was accepted. He received God's grace, his presence, his nearness, and he responded. He trusted God at his word. By faith, he trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Each of these characters that, that Stephen highlights, he highlights how they related to God by faith. How do you relate to God before you have a temple, a structure, a building? You relate to him by faith. And that's what he is pointing out here. God came to each one of these men and asked them to relate to him, invited them to relate to him by faith. They trusted God without all the answers. They trusted God before they had all the answers. That is the definition of faith. And that's what Stephen is highlighting in these characters. And then there's a third thing that Stephen is drawing out in this sermon that he's drawing out through each of these characters. And that is that each one of these characters points us to the way we are to live and to the one we are to hope in. Each, every single one of them, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David, every single one of them points us to the way we are to live. What's the way we are to live? By faith in the promises of God. And every single one of them, this is Stephen's chief point, every single one of them points to the righteous one, Jesus. That's his last point that he says before they raise up their fists, they, 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 get, they grind their teeth, and they stop up their ears, that every single one of these men point to the righteous one, Jesus. He's the true and better Savior, Jesus. He's the true and better Abraham. He's the true and better Abraham who left his father and his land to come to a distant country for the sake of other nations. He came to rescue. He's the true and better Abraham that did not try to take everything into his own hands as Abraham did, but trusted God perfectly, obediently to the point of death. He's the true and better Isaac who was miraculously provided and who brings true and lasting laughter and joy. That's what Isaac means. He is the true and better Isaac who was laid on the altar, but he was not spared. Instead, he took the knife for you and I. He's the true and better Jacob who did not swindle his brother out of a blessing. Instead, laid his blessing down for his brothers and sisters, you and I. He's the true and better Moses, our true deliverer, true rescuer, true redeemer, true prophet of God, who doesn't just reflect God's glory, but is God's glory, who, who isn't just 
between trying to keep God and man apart as we studied Exodus and, and Moses on the mountain in Exodus 19. No, instead he's the mediator who brings and reconciles God to sinful man. He's God in the flesh who came down to the top of the mountain and all the way down to dwell with us to rescue us. He's the true and better Joshua, our faithful servant, leading us into a true and better land of promise. He's the true and better David, our true champion, our true king, our true ruler who defeated sin, Satan, and death. He's our true and better Solomon, the very wisdom of God and the temple of the living God. Do you see it? Don't you hear it? Stephen is preaching Christ from the Old Testament. He's trying to take them to to what they believe, what they hold to, and he's showing them, you've missed it. He's doing what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39. You diligently study the Scriptures, hunting for God and His Messiah, what every page and every story points to Jesus, points to me, Jesus said. And yet you refuse to come to me. Every text and every person and every character and every page from beginning to end points us to Jesus. Every hope and dream is satisfied in Him, Stephen is declaring in this moment. And what's Stephen's aim in in sharing this and preaching this? Well, take it in, in reverse order. Take it in reverse order and we understand what he's trying to say. You, he says in verse 51, are a stiff necked people. You have rejected the one that they point to, that all the prophets and all the patriarchs and and all the story, the story of the Bible, you've rejected the very one, the righteous one, they point to. You stiff-necked people, verse 51, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand and the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and you did not keep it. What's Stephen's point in recounting this, the first thing he's trying to communicate is you've rejected the very one that all of your history points to. All of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures. Which leads to his second large point, larger point, which is rather than trust the wisdom and way of God's redemption, you've trusted in your traditions and your temple and your moral law keeping. You've trusted in your own resume. And you've rejected the resume of the only righteous one who is the temple of the living God, who obeyed the law perfectly, who offers a real land of promise. This is what he's proclaiming in this moment. You know the laws, he's saying to them. You try to diligently keep them, but you're radically inconsistent. You practice circumcision, but you do it on the Sabbath. Which is a, a, an accusation Jesus made. You, 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 you're inconsistent. You know you're not supposed to murder, but you murdered the only innocent one, Jesus. And oh, by the way, you're about to murder me. You're radically inconsistent. And the greatest piece of evidence that you 
that you break the very law that you say you're committed and devoted to, the the very piece of evidence that, that shows that you are ignoring the very one you say you honor, which is Moses. Stephen says in the middle of this text, he says, you ignored what he said. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, and Stephen quotes it, where Moses says, there is a greater prophet to come. Listen to him. There is one greater than me to come. A prophet who will tell you, who will promise you, who will satisfy all your hopes and dreams and needs. Listen to him, which means to heed him, submit to him, yield to him. The greatest piece of evidence that you break the law, that you hope in your own traditions and your own resume rather than the resume of the righteous one, is you don't even listen to the one who gave you the law. Jesus is the only one who kept the law perfectly. Jesus is the one that Moses pointed us to. Therefore, if you reject him, you will never know the nearness and grace of God. No building can save you if you reject the temple of the living God, Jesus Christ. No perfect resume you think is perfect can save you if you reject the only perfect resume of Jesus Christ. And with that, the messenger becomes the message. With that, the text turns, and they cannot stand what he's saying. They cannot, they cannot handle the conviction and the condemnation and the pride. They, 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 they can't do anything other than become enraged. Though he was innocent, though he was right, though, though they could bring no real accusation against him, though they could not withstand the logic on fire, the, the wisdom and the, and the spirit that he's full of, they, they, instead they're enraged, it says, they ground their teeth, they rushed at him, and they killed him. Verse 55, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And then verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What do we make of Stephen in this moment here? Don't you hear it? Don't you hear it? Don't you see it in what, how he's living and how he's, his faith and what he's preaching and how he dies? Like the Old Testament characters that Stephen brought to our attention, Stephen now is clearly more than ever pointing us squarely to Jesus. Rather than stare at Stephen, let's stare through Stephen to the one Stephen stares at. To the one that Stephen points us to. Stephen is pointing us to Jesus. And because his faith is in Jesus, 
He gets the full nearness and the full presence and the very face of God. What do we see in this text? He's pointing us to Jesus. Don't, don't you see? I mean, it's been from the beginning. Stephen is accused and tried just like Jesus. He was innocent. He's not sinless like Jesus, but he's innocent. That's the text. Luke is trying to make that clear. He's full of, full of, full of, and, he, and his face shines like they, they, they couldn't withstand the, the truth and the grace that he presents and the truth and the grace that he lives. He, he's pointing us to Jesus. He's He's accused and tried like Jesus, but then he preaches the Old Testament like Jesus. Remember the end of Luke? That's exactly how Jesus did. He, he took the disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus and he took them to Moses and the prophets and he showed them how all of Moses and the prophets points to him. He's preaching just like Jesus. And then he dies just like Jesus. Dies just like Jesus. Did, did you hear it? On the cross, do you remember when, when, when Jesus was on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now it says in the text, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, I commit my spirit to you. Receive my spirit. And then what? How does it end? It ends the same way. He dies the same way Jesus died. Jesus on the cross said, begged, urged, pleaded with God to show mercy on his murderers. And what does Stephen do here in this moment? He does the same thing. He does the same thing. He says in the, in the text, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. He pleads for God's mercy towards them. For God's forgiveness towards them. And then like like Jesus, Stephen's death opens the floodgates of the gospel to go forth to the nations. Like Jesus, the gospel just goes forth through this death, through his life and faith and death. He, he's not sinless, he, he, he's, but he is just like Jesus here. He, he looks like Jesus and he's acting like Jesus and he smells like Jesus in this moment. And through him, the gospel goes forth to the nations. As we turn the chapter, we're going to see that, that persecution breaks out on the church at this very moment. But it does not hinder, does not arrest, does not stop the gospel. It bursts onto the scene, floods the nations, floods the earth. It's extraordinary. Like the, the character Stephen brought to our attention, Stephen himself is pointing to, to Jesus. But why? Why? Because Stephen's not just conveying information. He's conveying the very Savior who's transformed his life. He's con communicating what has radically altered his life, his only hope in life and death. He's communicating his Savior. He's communicating Jesus. He looks and smells like Jesus because he's full of Jesus. All those characteristics we heard about earlier, full of grace, full of truth, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, full of power. He's full of the very presence of God. He's full of his Savior, Jesus. How do you plead? Think about it this way. How do you plead for God's mercy and forgiveness towards your murderers? How is that possible in that moment that that's what the, your last words are pleading for God's mercy on your murderers? It's only if you've been transformed and filled by the one who was murdered on your behalf.
It's only if you see that I was one that lifted up stones against Jesus. I am a sinner who rebelled against God. It's only if you see that God showed extraordinary, remarkable, tireless grace towards me, a sinner. How is it that you stare at the jaws of death and you don't blink? How is that? It's only as you stare through those jaws of death into the eyes of the one with the power over death. That's what Stephen's doing here in this moment. He doesn't see the stones lifted up against him. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. He sees the face of God. He's not threatened by their accusations. He's not threatened by... When you're that free, no one else's approval and no one else's opinion and no one else's accusations matter when you're that free, when you have the smile of God and, the, and, and Jesus standing at his right hand whispering your name in his ear. That's how Stephen's able to do that. How do you speak with such authority, conviction, confidence that the righteousness that we have is not in law-keeping or land or temple observance, but in the righteous one, Jesus? How is that possible? Only if it's true. Only if, if it's true, only if you've encountered the righteous one. Only if you've seen him face to face. Had him invade your heart and your life. Do you realize the worthlessness of trying to hold up my law keeping and my resume? Only when you see him and his shining glory and the beauty of his righteousness and the righteousness that he provides and the perfect resume that he kept and offers, only when we see that, only when we understand that, only when we meditate on that, do we let go of the trivial, worthless attempts to hold up our own resume. As George Whitfield said, if, we try to get to, if we're trying to earn our way to heaven, it'd be like trying to climb a rope to the moon. Worthless. And only when we see the righteous resume of Jesus do we understand that and do we let go of the rope. And that's what Stephen has done. And finally, because Stephen's faith is in Jesus, Stephen has the very nearness and grace of God. He has the, the face of God. He has the nearness of God. He has the access to God. How is that? Because it's clear, it's abundantly clear, his hope is in the righteous one who gives that access. The scriptures are clear. Jesus is clear. The New Testament is clear. No one has the face of God except for Jesus. And no one gets the face of God except through Jesus. So how does Stephen have the face of God? Because his hope is in the only righteous one. And the righteousness he provides. That's what he's clinging to. That's what he's hoping in. That's his hope in life and death. How does Stephen stare through the face of death? How does he stare through it? How does he, how does he not blink in this moment because he's staring in to the face of God? The smiling face of God. And he sees Jesus at his right hand whispering in God's ear. That one's mine. That one's yours, Heavenly Father. 
The text is teaching us so much, but one thing that it is, is full on asking of each one of us is which one are you? Are you Stephen who hoped in the righteous one? Are you Stephen who hopes in the only righteousness that he provides? Are you Stephen who hopes in the only righteousness that God provides in the righteous one and therefore have the nearness and the face of God even in the face of death? Or are you the synagogue of the freedmen? Are you like these men in this story who who are trying to, who hear that over and over again in the Old Testament in the characters and yet say, you know what, we're good on our own. We don't need Jesus. We have our law keeping. We have our resume. We have our temple observance, our temple attendance. We have the land. We have the, 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 the birthright. We're good. We don't need Jesus. And let me ask this question. Who gets the face of God in this text? Which one gets the full face of God? The one who's trying to earn and claw his way to the face of God through all of his law keeping? Or the one who says, despairing of his own law keeping, the own temple observance, and says, no, not I, Jesus, but Jesus. Which one are you? Which one am I? Stephen proclaimed to his audience, you are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And they stopped their ears and they drowned out his words and ultimately they murdered him. They essentially said, we're good. We don't need that talk about Jesus. We don't need Jesus. But we see in the text, they desperately do. They desperately do. That Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus that he provides, the righteous one Jesus, is our only hope. Now what's remarkable, and we're going to spend more time looking at this next week, is is a little section in verse 58 that I skipped over. A section, a little part of the sentence that you may be familiar with. That while Stephen has been preaching this message, while Stephen has been proclaiming this message from the Old Testament, from Abraham... And Moses and David. And then while Stephen is being stoned and murdered, in the latter half of verse 58, it says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then the very next chapter shows us that this Saul ravages the church. But what's remarkable is that no gospel seed is wasted. No gospel seed is wasted because Stephen, in all of that preaching of the Old Testament, Stephen, in how he lived, Stephen, in his faith, Stephen, even in his death, was preaching a message to Saul that he could not withstand, that he could not overcome, such that Saul who likely is the leader of the synagogue of the freedmen who tried to pay his debts off to God by moral performance and temple temple observance later becomes Paul. And why? Because he's knocked off his horse by the blinding light of Jesus, the only righteous one. And in the light of his perfect righteousness, all of Saul's law-keeping and righteous living and moral performance, he says, became dumb. And do you realize, if you go back, this is your homework, go back and read Romans chapter 4. 
Go back and read Galatians chapter 2. Go back and read the 13 letters that Paul preached and wrote to the churches. When you read Romans 4 and you read Romans Galatians chapter 2, Paul is simply reciting Stephen. He starts with Abraham and he works through David, showing them in the Old Testament the worthlessness of trying to keep the law by their own works. Instead, the only hope we have is Jesus. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Let's end and pray there. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Preached in this text, but lived in this text. Breathed in this text. Absorbed, transformed by Stephen or through Stephen in this text. Conveyed to this synagogue of the freedmen, conveyed to Saul, conveyed to us. May we be like Stephen, hoping in the only righteous one, despairing of our own righteousness. May we not be like the synagogue of the freedmen, so staunchly committed to our traditions and temple that we miss the one they point to, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.